Everywhere I look around me, I see smart, interesting, innovative, clever people. And that's really different to that sort of subconscious stereotype of the country I'd held, you know, as a kid who had zero curiosity about that world. Hello and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of rural and regional women across Australia. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this episode. Today's guest, Annabelle Hickson, isn't your average country girl. In fact, even though she's written extensively about her life on the land, she still feels like a foreigner travelling to another wonderful planet. Even after almost a decade living rurally with her husband, Ed, and three children, she's still astonished by her life, lifestyle, and the people within it. Her stories about learning the worth of simple things, harnessing ambition, and that sometimes a big house in the country isn't what's going to make you happy. Also, just a note before we start, some of the audio quality in this interview is a bit sketchy at times due to bad internet connection. But as many of you living on the land will know, this comes with the territory. It's such a surprise to me, you know, life out here. It's before I moved out here, I was very urban, you know, and very institutionalized, really. You know, I I worked in offices, I caught trains and all that sort of stuff. And I, I really didn't pay any attention to the natural world around me. But out here it's such a big part of life you know it's inescapable and it's so good for my mental health to be surrounded by nature it's it's just the greatest gift and such a surprise do you feel like a country girl now after all the years that you've been living in in Moray and Tenterfield do you do you finally do you have that feeling or do you think you're still getting there no I still feel like a visiting alien I mean a very happy alien I know. I do feel like I don't belong here, but that I'm very lucky to have a seat here. I'm waiting for someone to tell me I have to leave. So let's rewind a little bit back to those days where you were living in the city. What was your, what was your childhood like? What stands out for you? Uh, I had a very suburban childhood. Uh, I think it was a really lucky time to grow up in Sydney, in suburban Sydney. You know, we had incredible freedom. And I just sort of really remember roaming around with packs of friends in neighbourhoods. And, you know, when I was a teenager, somehow I got my mitts on my mother's Volvo station wagon. I also remember an incredible amount of freedom with that. Um, I think I look at my kids now and I wonder if they'd grown up in the city, they probably wouldn't have as much freedom as I did. I mean, it was hardly the city. It was, it was 45 minutes out of Sydney. So really quite suburban. Um, Yeah. I, I feel like my childhood was very normal, but whenever anyone says things are normal, I always think, well, then you must be crazy because there's no such thing as normal. So I'm a bit hesitant to say that, but it was, you know, it was, it was a very lovely, simple suburban childhood. Did you ever have friends, um, family friends or anything that you would visit in the country? Like was the, were you at all aware of what happened outside of the city? No, I was not aware. I mean, I read 
lots of books, but they were probably set over in England and they, you know, referred to the countryside mm-hmm. in those, in those very English ways. Um, there was one friend whose parents went camping at Easter every year on a farm. I'm going to guess it was about three hours out of Sydney. I can't even remember where it was, but I went with her for maybe about five years and absolutely adored it. That was really my only experience with the country and we just set up camp on a little river and the parents had a great time and the kids had a great time but my my parents were not at all campers so when we'd go away we'd always you know stay in hotels and and they'd actually take me overseas you know that was their focus and I really didn't know anything much about Australia outside of where I lived I went to a school and there were there were lots of boarders from the country who lived there and some of them were great friends and I enjoyed their company very much, but I literally never thought about what their home was. You know, I only ever sort of imagined them in the dining room in the boarding house and that's where it stopped. I, I feel really embarrassed really how, how little curiosity I had about this amazing world where they all came from. I think it's quite common though. You know, I think for lots of people who live city lives, we can be quite arrogant about, about what matters. And um, I'm just really glad that now as an adult, I've had a chance to experience life on the other side of the, um, of the mountains. And I can really see that there's lots of lives that matter a lot out here. <laughs> At school, were you a, an academic or a creative? I was an academic. Um, I never, I wasn't particularly good at drawing, so therefore I thought I wasn't creative. You know, that horrible trap you can fall into just because you can't sketch (laughs) means you're not creative so no I was definitely that's the story I told myself you know that that was that was the track I was going to pursue and it's it's really only since having kids that I look back and I think gosh I um wish I'd done more artistic things at school and I wish I'd even done more artistic things you know after school Uh, it was all sort of academic stuff for me yeah because as your path has, you know, twisted and turned, you are such a creative, but I, I love it that you say because you couldn't draw because I, I feel exactly the same. Art and being good at art was such a yardstick as to whether you're creative or not. And even if I, I loved art, but I was shocking at it and I, mm. I just loved to make things, but not very good at it. And uh, at such an early stage in your life, it's quite a talent, isn't it, really, to be good in the, in the creative sense with having no wisdom or life experience behind you? Mm. I think it, though, I don't know if this is how you felt, Sky, but there just comes a time where you can't keep it in anymore and it doesn't even matter if you're good at it. <laughs> you know, I just got to this stage in my life and it's, I don't even care if I can do this or not. I just couldn't keep it in anymore. It wasn't even a choice, you know. So tell me, how did Ed come into your life? Oh, basically an arranged marriage. We had uh, our parents got to know each other through some common friends. Ed's sister went to the same school that I did, but she was, she was a bit older than me, so we didn't cross over. But Did you know her? Was she a country girl? Well, I didn't know her at school. I was interested in country girls. I certainly wasn't interested in country boys. Actually, one day a friend of mine basically kidnapped me because she wanted my Volvo station wagon 
and we went up to a B&S at North Star. <laughs> and this, that was my first. Someone gave me a cup with a string around it and, you know, I put it around my neck and I, had, I felt like I had arrived at another planet. I had no idea about that world. Anyway, I was not into the country scene at all. I don't know if I was horrified. I was just such an arrogant little brat, really, and, and thought that, um, you know, beatnik Jack Kerouac kind of philosophical discussions was where it was all at. So they're like, rum drinking V&S balls were not my scene at, at the time. But anyway, thank God they're only just a tiny part of country life. Um, so wait, what was your question, Sky? I've really now gone off topic. Sorry. Well, I know we digress. Um, Ed, how did he come into your life? Oh, yes. So... I became quite friendly with his parents and we would go on these family holidays all together. But Ed was a little bit older than me, so he'd finished school and wasn't interested in family holidays. But my sister and I became quite close with his parents. And they I was working at the Brisbane Bureau for the newspaper then and they were living over in Moree and they said, why don't you come over for a weekend and visit us? I thought, why not? We jumped in the car and we drove out west and it was definitely the further, the furthest west that I had ever gone. And we had this wonderful weekend and surprise, surprise, Ed was there and we just hit it off. It was straight away. I remember getting back in the car with my sister on the way home and just screaming. Oh. <laughs> and um, I said, I think I'm in love. <laughs> oh, anyway, I love it, that. that. It did work out quite well. <laughs> that feeling of like young love uh, mm. is quite nostalgic with, you know, so many people. I'm sure there's been lots of people that have had the same experience and it's, yeah, can't wait to explode with excitement after meeting a boy that um, yeah. ticks the boxes. So what was it that ticked the boxes about him? Um, did it help that he was a country boy or that was insignificant? Uh, that was insignificant, but what helped was that he was, he seemed incredibly smart and capable and able to do a lot of things. You know, he was, I remember we were talking, you know, about politics and, you know, he was, he was very clever and very well informed. And then the next day he flew us in his light plane to his sister's place for lunch at Mungandai, you know, I thought, who is this guy? And some, I think, I think there was a problem with a car. He fixed that. He, you know, he was just so physically capable and mentally sharp. And that's, that's what I found immensely attractive. And what happened from there? How, how did it sort of evolve that you came to be in Moray? It, it, that was, it was really dry during that time. So um, Ed didn't have much on at the farm. And so he effectively moved to Brisbane for a few months and he would cook me dinner. I'd come home from work and he'd cook dinner. He set a very high bar, one which he has not been able to maintain. <laughs> um, and we just, you know, we really just hit it off. It was, it was straight away. And so much so after about six months of being together, I'm going to move out west and, and I quit my job. We ended up having a diversion in Argentina for a year <laughs> and, um, and then we came back and got married and settled into family life pretty much straight away. I'd love to get more kind of explanation from you as to what it felt like moving away from the city to the country, which as you say, I mean, I'm sure once you met Ed, you became familiar with aspects of it, but um, that's something that was so foreign to you. Well, the initial move from 
well, Sydney via Brisbane to Moree wasn't that didn't feel like a big deal because we were living in the town of Moree. So I was very close to the supermarket and, you know, a, a town community. Ed's family was all based around there. So it was really easy to meet people. You know, they, they introduced me, everyone welcomed me straight away. So th- from that point of view, life didn't feel that different. However, what I did struggle with was work. Uh, you know, there's there's not a lot of work opportunities in small towns and I'd left my dream job and, you know, had moved to Moree and I very arrogantly assumed I'd walk into the offices of the Moree Champion and they would offer me, you know, uh, the seat at the editor's table and that's what I would do. So I went into the Moree Champion and they said, I'm sorry, we don't have any work. Then I turned around and I walked over to the cafe across the road and I said, do you have any work? And they said, no. And then I just sort of slumped down and probably stayed slumped for the next few years (laughs) because I had pinned so much of my identity on work and I wasn't able to find any work that felt meaningful to me for those first few years in Moree. And I think for me, the big adjustment of that move was working out how to create work for myself, you know, from shifting from being an employer employee to a self-employer so that that was the biggest shift for me in the move it wasn't so much the move from the city to the country that didn't come until I moved to a farm out where I am now so I sort of had this slightly delayed staged you know way to kind of acclimatize well let's talk about that you know the aspect of pinning your identity so strongly to what you do and the work that you do. Have you moved away from that now, do you think? No, (laughs) I haven't moved away from that. I mean, I think if I was mentally very well developed, I would. I would be able to uh, enjoy my days and care for my children and enjoy the company of my friends around me and that would be enough. I mean, I think that's what well-adjusted people do. I'm, I'm not a well-adjusted person. I am incredibly ambitious and have this drive to work and to create and to build something that's bigger than me. I'm sure it comes from, you know, an unhealthy place, but it's the way I am and it's how I feel alive and it's how I feel like I'm thriving. So no, that, that, that hasn't gone away at all. I guess what I've got better at is being able to create the projects for myself rather than waiting for them to be given from, you know, a boss. I completely relate to the ambition side of things. I think many people would too. So can you tell me a little bit about, I'm just interested in your perspective on ambition too and how it manifested for you when you first moved to Moree and you had a little bit more time on your hands. When I have more time on my hands and I don't have a productive way to channel it, I do insane things like rearrange the furniture four times a day and paint rooms a completely different colour, even though I painted them a month ago. I mean, I I am my own worst enemy and I go insane. So, it's, you know, ambition is, it's a, it's got two sides, I think. If it can be used for good, great. But if you don't channel it right, I just feel like it can destroy you. So, um I've definitely got better at noticing that. And when I, the good indication is how many times I've shifted the sofa 
And if it's more than, you know, once a week, I think, right, I am not, (laughs) I am not channeling my energies (laughs) in the ways that they need to be channeled. How good. In your Grazy Her uh, interview in that article, you, you explained that you bought a weatherboard home and it was something that you would do up. Can you talk a little bit about what the process was there? And was that an example of channeling your ambition? Yes, that was an example of channeling my ambition in the wrong direction, I think. <laughs> so, the, well, the house, I mean, gosh, it's this beautiful house. It was called Stormont and it was owned by this incredible family And lots of people in the area have lots of really beautiful memories of tennis parties and also, you know, it just, it's this lovely, lovely place. So by the time we bought it, it was really run down and um, quite neglected. And I, well, that was perfect for me because I was up for a project and I had these dreams of living, you know, in this rambling weatherboard and my children growing up, running around the verandas, you know, it, it was absolutely gorgeous um yeah it was really beautiful so I think what what happened is I had these dreams but I didn't match them up with the reality that dreams and especially ones of the renovating kind cost money and I know that sounds so ridiculous but but we sort of we started this project and it just became so much bigger than we'd anticipated money-wise. And we sort of got to the point where it was this gutted shell. So we had to kind of keep going because otherwise it was worth nothing. But I just, it put Ed and me and our family under so much stress. And that's when the dream didn't matter anymore. You know, the dream didn't count when actually it was an enormous amount of stress. So that was a very good lesson for me that it's fine to have dreams, but it doesn't mean you necessarily have to do them all. Um, Some dreams cost a lot of money and others don't, (laughs) you know, and I I think that was, it was really good for me to let go of that, that, I mean, gosh, now that I say it out loud, it's almost a bit like pinning my self-identity on my job. And I guess in that same way, I had pinned my self-identity on the kind of country house that I wanted to live in. And I think in some kind of really warped way at that stage, I thought, well, I've sacrificed my career. I better have a great house to live in. That's just a recipe for disaster because great houses don't make great lives. You know, you live, if you happen to live a great life in a nice house, well, great. But, you know, what matters is the living the great life, not the great house. Um, so that was a big adjustment, but I'm really glad. I mean, Ed and I joke now and, and he says, well, you know, Annie, some people do MBAs. <laughs> and, and that experience was my MBA, you know, where I really learnt about what matters and, and what, what I want to spend my limited resources on. You said in, in your Grazy Her story that this was the time where you really became an adult. Yeah, talk about arrested development. I mean, I was 28 or so at this stage. So that's, I think that probably speaks to what a privileged life I've had. But yeah, that was when I really understood about dreams and choices and consequences and working with what you've got, not what you wish you had. And that was the day that all of a sudden I felt I I accepted that my life was my responsibility. And from that point on, it's been incredibly a a much more satisfying thing this this living thing so what happened next what was the catalyst for ending that chapter so we decided 
that we would sell this beautiful Maury house. We'd pretty much finished the renovation, so it was it was gorgeous, but it had taken its toll on us financially and mentally. And we just decided we, we don't have to stay. So we sold it and we moved to a little block that Ed had a bit further east and he had started planting pecan trees there. So we would go to this little block on weekends and stay in the tiny little fibre house on the hill. We'd sleep on the Gorsden veranda and we just had the most wonderful time there. And we realised this could be it. You know, we'd be in a much more comfortable financial position and we would be in charge. You know, we'd be able to live our life under our own steam. So that's what we did. We sold the Moree house. We said goodbye to our beautiful friends in Moree and we moved two and a half hours east. It was the beginning of the next stage and it, it's been the most exciting stage of my life so far. I don't know where it was, Annie, but I heard you once say that when you moved to Tenerfield, you used to sleep on that Gorsden veranda and you would go to bed early and listen to, you and Ed would listen to podcasts. Tell me a bit about how you're actually feeling when you got there. We were so fired up and charged with that wonderful feeling of being able to do things under your own steam, that self-efficacy, you know, when you're actually living within your means and you're making things, you're doing things, you're, you're accepting consequences. And we were just, we, we felt free. We felt free and we would sleep on the veranda with the, the, the Gaussian veranda, the, the kids, they were still in little cots. They could basically sleep in drawers. You know, they took up no room at that stage. So they were inside, we were outside and, the little light on the veranda roof, you know, the beautiful moths would buzz around it. I mean, even that, I would just look up and think, I'm so lucky. This is so beautiful. We were just, we were high. It was up on the hill so we could look out through the gauze and just see the baby little pecan trees growing on the field below. And it just was a real time of new life, you know, literally and metaphorically. It was, it was really exciting. And I mean, they were the good days. On the bad days, I would look around me and think, where is everyone? You know, the supermarket was an hour's drive away. I I didn't know anyone in the valley. It was me, long grass, young children and snakes, you know, and I I thought, geez, how how do you live out here? But, you know, slowly by slowly, I I became great friends with our immediate neighbour and she's just been the greatest gift. She's you know, you only need a couple of great mates and she is so wonderful. She kind of fills the place of a couple of great mates, you know, and, and just from that point on, it kind of clicked. I slowly worked out how to not be so frightened of snakes, you know, how to go for walks that weren't on marked tracks. Mm. <laughs> you know, it just, mm. it took me a while, but the freedom and the dignity in that, in that self efficacy you know there's nothing like it more from annabelle in just a moment but now a word from today's sponsor today's episode of life on the land is brought to you by australian family-owned fashioned retailer bird's nest hatched in cooma in regional new south wales bird's nest offers a shopping experience like no other With an extended size range and a personalised style guide and thousands of curated outfits to inspire you, it's their mission to help you discover the styles that you feel amazing in both inside and out. For the month of September, 
Bird's Nest are giving you $10 off your next order for orders over $70. Simply enter the code LIFE ON THE LAND at the checkout. With express shipping on all orders and a 365-day fuss-free returns policy, the Bird's Nest girls are your wardrobe wingbirds in waiting. Head to birdsnest.com.au to rediscover your style mojo. How did you meet your neighbour? Tell me that moment. We had met on weekends before we moved there full time, you know, and, and she was so excited to have people with children, you know, next door. She would invite us over for dinner and she is Italian. Her parents were both, you know, immigrants from Italy and like her mum, who is now my nonna, she can cook the meanest pasta and she would have us over for pasta and we'd talk and she'd, you know, I'd say, oh, we're thinking about moving over and she'd say, oh, you're never going to do it. And then one day we did. And every Friday night we would spend together, her family and our family, and we'd just drink wine and talk about the same stories. It was just, you know, wonderful. It felt like being back at school. I, I love that. And I think everyone's got their special person that looked after them when they first moved to the country or moved house. And those people are so special in the in the in the fabric of rural life in Australia I reckon you talk about living living life under your own steam you've mentioned it a couple of times do you think this was enhanced by the fact that you were isolated and you took yourselves like really it sounds like into the sticks yes I think isolation has actually been such a great gift because I can't ring people and outsource things to them because there are not the people to outsource things to. So you have to work it out yourself. And, you know, in a parallel way, I see the kids, you know, they go off on little moat, like tiny little motorbikes out beyond where I can see them. And if they fall off the motorbike, they have to work out how to get back home. And I, you know, I I see them growing up and I've also sort of seen me growing up in in that way. And I, I just think, we're also specialised these days, you know, and, and I do think we miss out from giving things a go ourselves, even things we're not necessarily particularly good at. You know, I mean, Ed does all our plumbing here, which I don't know, I don't want to offend you, Ed, but maybe you're not particularly good at it, but, <laughs> but he does it, you know, and that means we don't have to wait. So for a, a good year, I had a, a gas camping stove and actually my friend across the river, exactly the same thing. She has four children and she would feed them on a little camping gas stove while we were both waiting for a plumber to come and, you know, put the gas on. But it's fine. Our children were fed. I cooked delicious meals. You know, it's, it's just such a, such a novel realisation that oh, actually, we don't need so much. You can kind of make do with what you've got. It feels good when you work out how to make do with what you've got right now in this time where there are limitations. This is the golden time for, for me and my family. It's two-pronged, isn't it, that you've got your home and your family and then you've got your career, I suppose, and your, your work life. Tell me a bit about what that's been like and I ask that because there's so many women who are in exactly the same boat as you moved from the city fallen in love with a a country fella and not able to translate their work in the city back to where they live although I think things are changing now but 
What gave you the confidence to do what you've been able to do? Confidence. It's funny. I have never felt more confident than I do when I live out here. And for some reason, being isolated and being separate from, you know, when I go back into the city and I, like, before I decided to write a book and, you know, hand in my manuscript to a publisher, I was full of confidence. You know, I was sitting here in the middle of nowhere with me and my laptop and I thought, yep, this is going to be something. And I went into the city and spent some time with friends and, you know, I just saw all these amazing people doing all these amazing things. And I started doubting myself thinking, why would, you know, who am I to think that I've got something worthwhile? But when I'm out here alone, I'm free of that annoying voice. And my confidence is, I mean, it's almost frightening. It's, I mean, I've probably got too much confidence, but you know, fortune favors the brave really. Um, so just on a confidence note, it's, I hear people talking about how important it is for them to be around really inspiring people. And they, you know, that, that sort of argument for that city life, you know, where you can all network and be part of each other. But my experience has actually been quite different and that being alone and out here is, has, has been a catalyst for, for the confidence to try sort of creative things. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's the way it's been. Maybe it's the lack of comparison. There's nothing to compare yourself to. Yes. Well, comparison is the thief of joy, as whoever smart person said that. Yeah, it's completely the lack of comparison. And, and I think I'm quite susceptible to being weighed down by comparisons, you know, obviously, because it's, uh, it's incredibly freeing out here. You can just run your own race. You know, there's no, there's no distractions in, in that sense. Um. Tell me a little bit about your foraging escapades. So spot on for so many people, I think, that foraging things from the roadside. Well, they're everywhere, aren't they? There's so much of them and they're free. This is what I just couldn't believe, I think, as someone who was used to paying money for things. I just could not believe the bounty that was just growing of its own accord on the side of the road. I completely fell in love with it and really got quite obsessed. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, creating sort of insane overhead installations for just me and Ed and the kids. You know, it was it was really out of control for a while, but God, it was fun. And and I um yeah, like I guess with what I was doing with my blog, I just it was it wasn't enough to just do it. For some reason I wanted to document it and then to share it. And that's why the book came about. I still can't believe it. I still think, God, I cannot believe I wrote a book on how to do the flowers. <laughs> I just think so many of the things that you do seem to, they just really, really accurately and uh, in a down-to-earth way reflect what so many uh, country w- women see. And I think maybe for you, I don't know, do those sort of things stand out for you more because you, you um, had an upbringing in the city? I think it's definitely easier to notice things when you don't take them for granted. Like, like Helen Gardner says, the power of the person sitting in the back seat. Being a slight outsider is really good from, from an observational point of view. Let's talk about Galar, your next latest, most exciting project. Where did this idea come from? Can you remember when it sparked in your mind? It's been bubbling away for quite a while, this idea. So I, I, as I said, I did the book 
and I really enjoyed doing that project, but it was a very individual project. And I was yearning for something that was not so much about me and about a more universal experience. And everywhere I look around me, I see smart, interesting, innovative, clever people. And that's really different to that sort of subconscious stereotype of the country I'd held you know, as a kid who had zero curiosity about that world. And I'm just always amazed at the amazing things that go on, you know, out, out here. And I just really thought, well, a magazine is such a great way to document those stories. And I know the magazine world is imploding around me. But, you know, I look at magazines like Grazi Her and, you know, it's, I do feel like it might be the end of big glossy mags, but it could be such a beautiful time for more niche publications and a little sort of refuge in all the noise of Instagram and ads and TV, just this little quiet refuge where you can sit and read, you know, amazing stories about people and, yeah, I really, I do really respect what Claire, what Claire's created with Crazy Her. I think it's amazing. So that that's definitely helped give me the courage to give it a go too. Yeah, she's incredible. Similar in a similar way, just decided to do it and went with it, and and here and here she is five years later. How will Galar work? So Galar will be a quarterly printed publication. Each issue will sort of have a theme, a general theme, and, and I'll explore that theme through other people's stories. It's going to look at regional life, but through a creative lens. So lots of talking to artists and, well, not just artists, but, you know, the sort of creative side of regional life. And then I'm going to hopefully start to develop some podcasts as well, because I think it's really great to mix the the sort of old world technology of print with the new world of, of audio. Um, well, it's hardly new, but, you know, the, the, the more modern take. I, I, love, I love that combination. What do your days look like at the moment? I mean, how on earth are you fitting it all in to, um, you know, life with children on a farm where you have to drive an hour to go to the supermarket and uh, trying to develop your own publication from scratch? Well, some things have got to give and uh, domestic work has completely evaporated. I literally, I'm one person, I cannot do it all. So, you know, I walk out in the morning and I feel a little bit horrified, but it's like, what sort of life do I want to live? You know, I want to do this. Some things have got to give. So housework's pretty much gone, just the bare minimum. And also, I mean, I love cooking and I have you know, historically put in a lot of effort into what we eat, but now it's literally like two ingredients it <laughs> and the kids are fine it's it's good enough and I've I've sort of explained to them you know sorry I know I've been really neglectful for these last few months but I'm working on this and I really want to do it so I'm not baking you cupcakes to put in in your thing and you know I'm I, they wish that I were baking them cupcakes but they're they're sort of fine they're you know kids are incredibly resilient and even ed i checked in with him the other day and i said you know how how are you going you've had because he's had to pull a bit more weight on the domestic front he said annie honestly it's so much better (laughs) you know he's like i don't care if the house is messy like we can we can tidy it up one day you know you've got to sacrifice and i think everyone is busy you know everyone is busy so it's just choosing what you spend your time on 
And it is incredible what you can do when you focus and anyone's capable of creating things if they want it enough. Well, so much good luck with it. I don't think you really need it. I have a feeling it will be all kinds of wonderful. So good luck with it. And thanks so much for taking the time to speak with Gracie Her today and sharing your story so candidly. Well, it's my pleasure. I feel like I could listen to Annabelle's observations on life all day, every day. But before I let you go, there is just one more thing that Annabelle wanted to say, and it's about Grazy, her editor, Claire Dunn. We've decided to include it here as a side note because it really illustrates the ethos of Grazy, her in women supporting women. I, Sky, I did just want to share one more story because I want to show how how amazing Claire is. I mean, even the fact that she's having me on this podcast and I'm starting up a you know, a publication that is in a similar sphere, like it'll be different, but, you know, I just think that speaks to how collaborative she is and how non-competitive she is. And and that's, you know, amazing, but freelancing and making your own work is exhausting. You know, it's, it's exhausting and the, the grind of it can kind of wear you down. And it was a few months ago, I saw on Grazy Her, they, there was a job going for a journalist and, I applied because I thought, oh my God, I want, I want to have a salary. And, you know, I'd been working away on Galah in the background and I just thought, oh, it feels too hard. Grazi has a great publication. I'd love a job there. So I applied along with, you know, hundreds of other people. And after about a week, I thought, right, Annie, you've got to follow this Galah dream. You know, you, you've got to do it even though it feels hard. So I called up Claire and I said, Claire, I, I know I've applied for, for this job, but I need to take back my application because I'm actually going to start a magazine myself. And she was so incredible. She said, that is a brilliant idea. The more voices about country life out there, the better. Um, she said, you can ask me any questions. I'll tell you how I print the magazine, what I do, you know, any questions. And I was floored at her generosity and her complete lack of fear about competition and it just that's the kind of world I want to be in and that's the kind of industry I want to be in and it made me think wow niche magazines you know we can really work together um, but also it could be a really exciting industry. If you've loved Annabelle's story and feel that it's a story that's resonated with you too, why don't you tell someone else about it by sharing it through maybe a text or even on your Instagram stories. And thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Bird's Nest, who are giving you $10 off your next order for orders over $70. Simply enter the code LIFEONTHELAND at the checkout. You can find out more information as well as the links in our show notes or visit birdsnest.com.au. We've been absolutely blown away by your support so far for this independent podcast. Thank you so much. Rating and reviewing the program in iTunes is helping to get these wonderful stories in front of more people, so please keep them coming. We'll be back next week with a fresh Life on the Land story. Thanks for tuning in. 